Good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Parson and Michael Baranowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is political scientist Norman Ornstein. Dr. Ornstein is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a contributing writer for The Atlantic, a columnist for National Journal, and the author of many books on U.S. politics, including It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism, co-authored with the Brookings Institution's Thomas Mann. It's a book that won widespread praise, and deservedly so. I liked it so much that for the past several years, I've been using it as one of the primary books in my course on American political institutions, so I'm really glad to have the opportunity to talk to Dr. Ornstein on the show. Norman Ornstein, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you, Michael. You know, I've been following your work for, well, many years now, and I I feel like the one big theme, which I definitely saw in your book, The Broken Branch, and even more so, and it's even worse than it looks, is that Congress has become deeply dysfunctional. And, and so I'm wondering, how did that happen, and who or what, in your view, is responsible? Well, there's a lot of blame to go around. Uh, there are no angels here, as I often say. <laughs> right. Um, but if we're going to trace the trajectory, you could first go back to the beginning of serious partisan polarization, which really could take you back to uh, the 1960s, when we began to see uh, the race issue emerge again, the solid South becoming uh, competitive and then Republican, the Northeast and uh, New England and the West Coast going from being strongholds of moderate Republicanism uh, to uh, being the bluest uh, regions in the country. And the parties that used to have a quite a lot of admixture uh, ideologically uh, became much more cohesive and move further apart. Uh, But, you know, you can be polarized and still manage to function and solve problems. Look at Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch, a liberal Democrat, a conservative Republican who joined together for the Children's Health Insurance Program and many other things. Uh, So you've got to fast forward to the 1978 election. And Newt Gingrich, who on his third try, uh, a history professor in a small college in Georgia, comes to the House and immediately has a thesis uh, uh, combined with tactics and a strategy to break what was then a 26-year stranglehold that Democrats had on majorities in the House of Representatives. And the idea was to tribalize our politics and nationalize them for congressional elections. Uh, elections which had really been uh, maneuvered cleverly by the Democrats in the majority uh, so that no matter who was the president or what the conditions, they could run individually, use the advantages of being incumbents, name recognition, money, and basically say, don't blame me, blame everybody else. Newt thought that if you could create a condition where Americans were disgusted enough with the entire political process in Congress, they'd throw the ins out and bring the outs in. And we had a 16-year journey where he prodded and uh, goaded the majority, which, to be fair, was 
growing in arrogance uh, and uh, insensitivity that happens when you have power indefinitely, uh, but also uh, radicalized his own members who had gotten along with Democrats and then worked to get the rest of the country charged up. And uh, really two events made a difference here. One was a pay raise for uh, public officials done by all the elites in Washington uh, in 1988-89 that just enraged uh, voters. And the second uh, was electing Bill Clinton as president so that, uh, as you know, the normal process, normal in what's almost inexorably happened in American political life, that the party of the president loses seats in the midterm with the Republicans united in opposition to Bill Clinton, trying to make every victory look like a defeat and defeat big things, including his health care plan. The Democrats in disarray, Newt won that big victory in 1994. And along the way, using ethics as a political weapon, uh, uh, using language that convinced large numbers of people, including the candidates he recruited, that everything in Washington was evil and wrong, um, it really set the seeds for bad politics, tribal politics that became much, much worse when Barack Obama got elected president. Do you think that the media has done much to contribute to this? Oh, I think absolutely the media has been a problem at two levels. Um, the first is a mainstream media that has inculcated uh, a value that it clings to stubbornly that the most important thing to do is to report both sides of the story. Even when there aren't two sides to a story, and there might be many, many sides to a story. It's what we have come to call, and I think James Fallows of The Atlantic coined the term, false equivalence. So if you look at uh, the Obama presidency, where Republicans used unprecedented tactics of mass obstruction, of using things like the debt ceiling as a hostage, of misusing the filibuster in ways that hadn't happened before. Most of the press coverage was, well, everybody's to blame. Both sides are equal. And then we have the rise of the tribal media, um, which uh, has a business model that uh, emphasizes uh, apocalyptic outcomes nearing uh, us and pitting one side against the other because you can make a lot of money that way. It started uh, probably with Rush Limbaugh on talk radio in the aftermath of that uh, pay raise. It moved on to the uh, business model that the Roger Ailes brilliantly came up with for Fox, and now it's extended into blogs and social media. You know, I talk a lot in my classes about filibusters and filibuster reform, and, and obviously this is not an issue that stirs the imagination of most people, but it, it seems to me that the, the use of filibusters has changed in this new, more polarized Congress. And I was wondering if you could comment on how the use of filibusters has changed and what the consequences of that has been. It's a really important uh, focal point. Um, and, uh, you know, one reason is that uh, rules matter, and they matter enormously. But rules are undergirded by norms, and for a long time, you could look at uh, the filibuster. And remember, we had uh, from 1805 on uh, to the First World War, 
unlimited debate in the Senate, no way to stop it if an individual could keep the floor for any length of time or have a little bit of a tag team with a handful of others. Then we had a rule that was actually supposed to limit debate when a supermajority could make things happen. And the last time that that rule was uh, altered in a significant way before uh, uh, the last couple of years was 1975. Now, it was used obviously famously uh, when we had civil rights issues emerge and the Southern Democrats, then known as the Bull Weevils, trying to protect uh, segregation and their way of life as they saw it, would go on the floor and filibuster every time a voting rights or civil rights issue came up. That fit the idea and the culture that the filibuster is a rare thing uh, there for times when a minority um, uh, feels so intensely about an issue that they'll go all day, all night, indefinitely uh, to try and uh, keep something from uh, being passed. Uh, but it was a rare, rare thing. And for a long time, we thought of the filibuster as actually encouraging cross-party alliances and broad majorities of more than one party. Because if you did have an important issue, a social issue, uh, that could be filibustered otherwise, the majority had a great incentive to reach out and build relationships with members of the minority to get to the 60 or 67 or however many votes were needed for this. What we saw uh, really starting in 2007, uh, George W. Bush was the president. Democrats had in the 2006 election recaptured the Senate and were poised to pass a number of things that would have been embarrassing to the president and Republicans. And then ratcheting up when Barack Obama became president and Democrats had uh, their own uh, substantial majority was a very different use of the filibuster with the same rule. And it had been changed in 1975 to move the filibuster uh, threshold of stopping debate and moving to a vote from two thirds of those present and voting uh, out of the 100 member Senate to three-fifths of the Senate as a whole, an absolute number of 60. And what McConnell did was to start to use the filibuster on virtually everything, every piece of legislation, trivial or major, nominations for executive positions or judgeships, things that were widely accepted, even those that ultimately, when they got over it, would be uh, passed unanimously or near unanimously, including some of those nominations, because to overcome a filibuster, once you, in effect, with the way the Senate works, where individuals have uh, a lot of clout, almost everything is done by unanimous consent. Once you deny that unanimous consent and indicate that you will filibuster, you have to go through days and days of procedures to get cloture over that 60-vote margin to bring debate to an end. And then you can have, if the minority demands it, 30 hours of debate. So you can soak up all this time, which is a precious commodity in the Senate, just to obstruct things. The rule didn't change, the norms did. Mitch McConnell, the majority or minority leader then of the Senate, very deliberately blew up the way the Senate had operated to try and thwart Barack Obama and to make every victory look ugly and to block other things from happening. And that has altered the character of the Senate 
in ways that will play out uh, with a Trump presidency as well. And we still have some moments of reckoning to come uh, on how much the Senate will change. Democrats, out of frustration uh, in 2015, uh, when McConnell and the Republicans made it clear that the very important Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, which basically handles all of the matters of executive power and regulations, uh, which had, because of previous presidencies, a tilt towards conservatives, but had many vacancies. And McConnell said, we're not going to confirm anybody to fill those vacancies, no matter how well qualified or how wonderful they are to preserve our standing. And that frustrated Democrats enough that they changed the filibuster rule unilaterally in a questionable move in parliamentary terms so that there could be no filibusters for executive nominations, many of which had also been blocked, uh, ambassadors and uh, uh, positions in the Obama administration, and judges below the level of the Supreme Court. Now we're going to get a challenge, and uh, I think it's probable that sometime this year uh, we will see the Republicans turn around and unilaterally change the rule to eliminate a 60-vote threshold for Supreme Court nominees, and then we're going to see a lot of pressure to eliminate it for legislation, which would be a dramatic change in the Senate itself and how it operates. And that really is a consequence of uh, what happens when you decide for narrow uh, partisan reasons that you're going to take rules that have worked within the framework of the norms of the regular order and uh, get rid of them. You know, you mentioned Senator McConnell a lot. While I don't this why while I disagree with him on a lot of policy issues, I've always gotten the sense that he's a believer in the traditions of the the Senate and the normal order and so forth. Do you think that he would resist a move to just do away with the filibuster entirely? I do think that uh, Mitch McConnell and you know one of the things to remember about McConnell is that his mentor uh, was John Sherman Cooper whom I knew uh, when he was in the Senate and uh, was a, one of the real giants of the body. And I have to believe that John Sherman Cooper is rolling over uh, in his grave at what his protege has done. But there's still enough of that inculcated in Mitch McConnell uh, and a deep understanding of how the Senate operates that he really doesn't want to uh, blow up the filibuster on legislation. Uh, and we got to keep in mind that several of his colleagues are real institutionalists, and he still needs 50 votes with only 52 Republicans to make that happen. And he might not get them, 51 uh, overall. And uh, at the same time, uh, he uh, understands that the House of Representatives, which doesn't have the same constraints and which has a Republican majority that is significantly more radical on the right end of the spectrum than the Senate. And he's got Senate seats he wants to protect in 2018 and win. Uh, that having the filibuster is a great excuse for him if the House sends him crazy things that are unacceptable otherwise, but there'll be enormous political pressure to pass them, and now he can blame the Democrats. So he'll resist that very, very strongly. Uh, my guess is that the uh, filibuster rule outside of changing it for the Supreme Court does not change for legislation now. Um, what will make it much more problematic and interesting is if somehow 
Republicans win a lot of seats in 2018. And remember, there are 25 Democrats up, 10 of them in states that uh, Donald Trump carried, to only eight Republicans. If they get up to 56 or 57 or 58 senators, and Democrats can still muster the 41 to block things from happening, then the pressure on McConnell to change the rule from the outside, from uh, the Trump administration uh, and the White House, from uh, outside groups and uh, the big moneyed interests will be intense. Right. You know, looking back again, you know, in a lot of people look back at the sort of old, good old days of comedy and, and getting along in, in Congress. And, but when I, when you look back and look at the numbers, I mean, before 1995, when the Republicans, you know, assumed control, the Democrats had the majority for 52 of the previous 62 years in the Senate and 58 of the previous 62 years in the House. And I'm wondering, doesn't that lack of competitiveness do, competitiveness do a lot to explain why things were a lot less polarized during that time? I mean, the Democrats essentially ran the show. And so, of course, things would be less acrimonious. Uh, there's a lot of truth to that, uh, but I think there are a couple of factors uh, that fit in here. Uh, one is uh, that uh, being in the majority for a very long period of time, over time, you really develop a stronger sense of that norm that uh, was coined by Donald Matthews uh, in his famous 1960 book, U.S. Senators and Their World, Institutional Patriotism. That sense of wanting to uh, make your institution strong, keep it strong, was very deep. And a lot of members devoted a lot of time to strengthening and improving their institution. There's almost none of that now that's just about disappeared. And that has a lot to do with Newt as well. Um, the second factor is what we started with, uh, which is that uh, Democrats were divided, uh, even though they had a majority, because they had two enormous groups making up their coalition. The Southern conservative, mostly rural uh, Democrats, who we used to call boll weevils for that insect that infects cotton in the South, and the Northern urban Democrats who were mostly liberal. Now, what they had in common was they could have the party uh, name that would give them enduring majorities. And the Southern conservatives were happy with that because they tended to stick around longer, build seniority, and we had the seniority system, and have positions of power. Uh, and what that meant was uh, all of that, that to build majorities in Congress, Democrats almost had to find a different kind of coalition reaching across party lines. Sometimes you could do that where the liberal Democrats could find like-minded Republicans. Uh, and we had a lot of them who were highly visible and uh, well-known in the Senate, like Jacob Javits uh, and Kenneth Keating and Charlie Goodell at different times of New York, and Mark Hatfield uh, of Oregon and Tom Kekel of California, and there were many of them in the House. At other times, we had what Congressional Quarterly defined as the enduring conservative coalition which was basically a centrist uh, majority where the Southern uh, conservatives, often with the president, and particularly when there was a Republican president, uh, could join with conservative Republicans. 
Uh, and all of that meant possibilities for doing legislation because each side needed the other. And, of course, it's also important to remember uh, that during this time we had Republican presidencies emerge, uh, more often the Democratic ones, through a lot of that era of Democratic hegemony in Congress. So the desire to find a workable common ground was that much greater. Uh, now, I think we have a, a what you could argue is a third factor as well, which is uh, getting legislation through, making the system work, is something that Democrats have tended to be more open to than Republicans, yeah. uh, because that means having government do things. Well, yeah, I, 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 wanted, I wanted to ask you about that specifically because I'm sure you're familiar. There's, a, there's an argument that Republican obstructionism is not just justifiable but actually patriotic. I mean, I have a lot of conservative friends who say activist Democrat presidents and activist Congresses have basically tried to take this country down a dangerous and fiscally unsustainable road. And so the only principled response Republicans could make, at least in the minority, was to, you know, like that old National Review slogan, stand athwart history yelling stop. And so that's exactly what they did. Uh, and I have some sympathy for, for that perspective up to a point, although the fiscally responsible point, um, I don't, uh, because when uh, you've had uh, Republicans with the reins of power, um, their uh, immediate goal was simply to get giant tax cuts that have actually created much, much larger deficits. Uh, so uh, fiscal responsibility is not a prime goal of the contemporary Republican Party in the way it was with the Republican Party, including uh, what was the conservative wing uh, back when I came to Washington in 1969, and I think all the way up through uh, into the 1980s. Even if you look at uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, the first year of his presidency brought uh, big deficits uh, projected to go bigger over time. And he, uh, being a fiscal conservative, in the end, uh, supported tax increases for some uh, five out of the next six years uh, at least. But otherwise, you can make a case, and it is uh, an intellectually respectable case, that uh, compromise means government grows just more slowly than it would otherwise. And if you want to cut government, uh, then you've got to act in a different fashion. The problem that I would have with that is uh, you can stand athwart history and yell stop, but what it does is to create enormous turmoil and damage uh, to the country. Uh, in a world uh, where you have a great number of external threats and where uh, you have a global economy where everything is interrelated. So if you decide that you're going to stand athwart history and seriously threaten uh, to uh, keep the debt ceiling from being raised and blow up the full faith and credit of the United States, that's not a great thing. If you stand athwart history and stop the funding to deal with Ebola or Zika, you're not exactly uh, creating freedom in the country. And if you oppose a health care plan, which is mostly built around uh, firm Republican principles that emerged with people like Chuck Grassley and Orrin Hatch in 1993 as an alternative to the Clinton health care plan, and you decide that no matter what's in it, because it's proposed by Obama and the Democrats, you're going to oppose every part of it. 
and you're going to repeal it, then you get to a point where you have the weapons to repeal it, and you realize that doing so is going to create chaos and not the outcome that you prefer. Right. So there are limits to that uh, approach. You know, what, there are a lot of people who are obviously very concerned about how dysfunctional Congress has become, but there are also some people, including some political scientists, who say, yes, that's true, but the system is remarkably resilient and it will self-correct if we let it. And it's a view I'll admit that I have some sympathy for, and, and so I'm wondering what you think about that view. So you can certainly look at history. You know, I actually – let me step back for a minute and say that um, you have a large number of political scientists who are very much the same in terms of uh, the norms that they have inculcated as those mainstream journalists. There is a cynicism about uh, any possibility that things could be different. There is the sense that, oh, it's happened so many times in history before. It's all the same. We'll come out of it. No problem. Um, one of the best examples of that uh, and I'll mention a very good and very prominent political scientist in a way she wouldn't be really thrilled with. But I wrote a piece in uh, uh, the summer of 2015 in The Atlantic uh, titled something like Why This Time Might Be Different, suggesting that the normal pattern, uh, normal in quotes, uh, where Republicans would flirt with an outsider candidate, a Herman Cain, uh, say, but then they always come back to the establishment, wasn't going to work this time, and that uh, they had generated a radical insurgent populism that meant it very likely at that point, I said, that it's going to come down to Ted Cruz and Donald Trump, and Donald Trump was not to be underestimated. And right at the same time, Lynn Vavrick of UCLA did a piece saying why this time won't be different. And that reflected the conventional wisdom among political scientists. Nothing's changed. It's all the same. And they were wrong. And in this sense, too, you can make a case, and I have sympathy for it, that the nature of American history is we have had many crises of governance and crises in which we've had dysfunctionality. You could go back to 1800. You could certainly look at uh, the 1820s, the uh, so-called corrupt bargain in the 1824 election that led to the populist era of Andrew Jackson, uh, one of Donald Trump's heroes. You could obviously look at the Civil War era You could, and the period leading up to it. You could look at the turmoil from uh, the Great Recession of 1896 around the 1890s. You could look at the 1930s. You could look at the turmoil over Vietnam in the 1960s. And we've always managed, sometimes after a few years of turbulence, to reemerge strong. Uh, but the caveats I would offer to that are, one, there's no guarantee that uh, something goes on forever. Uh, you know, we probably, if we'd had political scientists around the time of the Roman Empire, when it was starting to fall apart, they would have said, hey, you know, we've seen this before. Uh, and at the same time, uh, we have not existed in an era before with tribal media, the kind of technological change we have now, and social media that create different coalitions and a different sense of uh, unsettlement in the country combined with the gaping inequality that we have and the uncertainty about the future that makes it ripe for uh, a uh, demagogue to emerge 
and very possibly uh, for uh, something to happen that could be troubling in terms of the future of a republic. So I think uh, there's reason to be very concerned right now, and I'm uh, less willing to entertain the, ah, it's always the same, don't worry about it, uh, philosophy of many of our colleagues. You know, kind of along those lines, I guess, it seems to me that Democrats in Congress are sort of adopting the same sort of strategy that Republicans did when Barack Obama was president. And and so I'm wondering, given where we stand now with polarization and tribal media and so forth and what it seems like the Democrats in Congress are going to do, uh, isn't the danger, at least in part, uh, uh, minimized in the sense that Donald Trump may end up an extremely frustrated president because his legislative agenda is going to be blocked by the same forces that made President Obama end up trying to do an end around around Congress with uh, executive orders and so forth? Uh, Yes, uh, certainly. uh, We could well see uh, that kind of frustration. And for people who don't like Trump's policy agenda, um, they'll feel comforted by that. I can tell you that I've talked to a lot of Democrats in the House and Senate, and they're um, uneasy right now for a couple of reasons, not just because of Trump. Uh, They rightfully condemned, as I did, a Republican strategy of mass obstruction. Uh, But let's face it, that strategy of mass obstruction, which included uh, deliberately creating a broad public anger at all of government, at all elites, at all of Washington. Gave them a presidential candidate they didn't particularly want, um, but who won. Uh, That gave them these enormous victories in 2010 and 2014, and now this one. Uh, You could argue that Mitch McConnell's cynical strategy and that of his House counterparts, uh, Paul Ryan, Eric Cantor, Kevin McCarthy, the young guns, worked. And uh, it was a strategy that basically said, yeah, a lot of Americans are going to get hurt along the way, but that's okay. It's uh, uh, pain now because we'll be able to make things so much better when we win. But if that's the approach that continues indefinitely, if whichever party is uh, out of the White House basically says, well, we're going to cause a lot of turmoil and pain now because uh, we can then benefit later on. We never get out of a very destructive downward spiral. But at the same time, Democrats in the Congress are saying, but if we just turn around and cooperate with everything, we've rewarded really bad behavior. And of course, it's not like they're going to say, oh, okay, now the next time you're in the White House, we'll cooperate. They'll go back to the same approach. So, uh, you know, it's a dilemma. Uh, At the same time, I think Democrats who have a natural inclination to govern may well find some areas, if Trump is willing, where he deviates from what is now uh, the establishment uh, Republican view, uh, and that includes on Social Security and Medicare uh, and on infrastructure, um, may well be that he can find more common ground with them, and that would frustrate the more radical uh, conservative Republicans There may be a few of those areas, but from everything that we've seen up to this point, my guess is that almost every legislative initiative uh, that manages to get through the House and make it to the Senate 
Democrats will filibuster because it will be outside what they see as the mainstream. And at the same time, there's another point that's worth making here, Michael, which is the House and Senate, even though they're controlled by Republicans, are still very different bodies with very different interests and very different time frames and dynamics. And uh, it's entirely possible that that great wish list and agenda that Republicans want to achieve will be thwarted not by Democrats, but by Republicans, because they can't keep their own act together and because their culture is such now that they can't. Paul Ryan can't say to his Freedom Caucus, screw you, I'll just make my majority with Democrats. That won't work in this culture. It's very different from uh, the way it was back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and uh, into the beginning of the 90s. Yeah. You know, one thing we haven't brought up, and I'd be remiss if I didn't, uh, is campaign finance reform. I, I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, Professor Lawrence Lessig. I'm sure you're familiar with his book, Republic Lost, which which also I use in my class. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure you know he argues that there's really only one overriding fundamental issue, and that's campaign finance. He says that if we fix that, essentially everything else is going to follow along in its wake. We'll have a more less dysfunctional Congress that will be responsive to the people and not the big money funders. And I'm wondering what you think about uh, Larry's argument. Um, you know, I, I'm a friend of Larry's, and I've been uh, supportive of many of the things that he said. Uh, and I am a, uh, a campaign finance reformer myself. I am very unhappy with what's happened in the political money system, and it's going to get significantly worse um, with what's going to be a much more pernicious federal election commission and probably a Supreme Court that will continue to remove all the boundaries. What we have now is a wild, wild west, and it is uh, very much like an enhanced gilded age. It will be extremely corrupt, and it is a very bad system. I didn't start with uh, support for this idea of patriot dollars, but I've come around to it, and I'm very, very curious to see how the experiment in Seattle works out. And that's where every voter gets a voucher, um, which you can't trade for uh, with others, but which you can use, $25, I believe it is, in Seattle, um, to support any candidate or campaign that you wish. And that takes money and basically uh, makes it a completely different uh, entity in the campaign, and it uh, provides enormous incentives for candidates to do retail campaigning and go after uh, large numbers of donors, uh, which is nowhere near as corrupting as having billionaires uh, and others who can uh, be the only ones who dominate a process. Um, in the absence of that, I've been very supportive of a uh, partial public funding system uh, like the New York City one, where you have uh, a five or six to one match for small donations once candidates show that they're genuine candidates and get over a threshold of a certain number of those small donations to try and tilt the playing field back and away from those big donors. Uh, but I'm very much a believer that the campaign finance system is a driver of dysfunction and uh, 
a contributor to the very troubling inequality we have in the country. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, one final question, and we're running a little short on time here, but I'd love to get your thoughts on, aside from your work, obviously, uh, what books or publications or, or, or journalists or other things would you recommend to listeners who want to get beyond the sort of daily clickbait headlines and get a, a fuller and a deeper understanding of how American politics works? Uh, sure. So uh, a couple of books that I recommend strongly uh, have been done by uh, Jacob Hacker uh, and Paul Pearson. Uh, one is called Winner Take All Politics. And they're very much along the lines of what Tom and I have done, but with a different twist. Uh, uh, there's a, another one that they've done more recently. I can't remember offhand uh, the title of it. There's a book by John Judas uh, about uh, the emergence of, of populism uh, the variety of populism that uh, Donald Trump uh, represents uh, right now that I would strongly recommend. And I also recommend uh, E.J. Dion's uh, book, How the Right Went Wrong. Uh, and I'll tell you that uh, E.J., Tom Mann and I are uh, now uh, deeply into a new book uh, that we're going to do together um, on the dangers of Trumpism and what we can do about it. Oh, excellent. I'll definitely be looking forward to that. Well, with that, thank you so much, uh, Norman Ornstein, for your time and for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you have any suggestions for future guests or if you have any thoughts, questions, comments, or criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where we post throughout the week, is facebook.com slash page. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. We'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service you use. Sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also helps out a lot. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through the PayPal or Patreon links on our website. We especially appreciate those monthly sustaining contributions through Patreon. They really do help out a lot. If you enjoy the show, you should check out the Politics Guys weekly newsletter. You can take a look at previous newsletters and sign up to have it delivered to your email inbox on our website, politicsguys.com. We'll be back with a new show next Wednesday. We hope you join us.